and it had fluted pillars and a Greek cross on its peaked roof. A stained glass window depicted a scantily clad pre-Raphaelitic fellow, lither than any McKay I ever met, cranking a printing press. The cemetery hosted other, smaller eruptions of eternal ego scattered here and there, squat monuments, narrow obelisks, fenced family plots. But when I cast my eye up and down the wide, gentle slope, I could see that most Connecticut Yankees who died in Newberry deemed a simple headstone marker enough in this world. Even the McKays, always public-spirited, opened their spare catacombs to their neighbors as a sort of deep winter purgatory when the ground was frozen too hard to dig graves. Connie liked the new one even less than I did. It loomed over the modest headstones of two of her schoolmates, twins who had died of scarlet fever in 1923. What on earth could possess a young man to erect such an extravagant memorial? The young man was in his forties. My great-aunt loved the English language and took pleasure in full sentences delivered with a flourish. Knowing she would find no joy in Afraid of Kicking Off Early, I answered, Perhaps he fears an early demise. Then he's recklessly immodest, considering the demands of the afterlife— Better to embark steeped in humility, and Ben... She fixed me with remarkably clear stone-blue eyes. Her fine features were framed by white hair and a straw picture hat. Beauty lingered. On a good day like this one, she could still pass for eighty. Yes, Connie. She stared a long moment, then shook her head as if dodging a mosquito. Sorry, lost my thought. Connie, my Aunt Connie, Miss Constance Abbott of Main Street, stood with the help of her cane and my elbow almost as tall as she had learned to at Miss Porter's. Always abstemiously slender, she was getting much too thin, and her memory had begun to lock up occasionally, unpredictably, terrifyingly. The transient, ischemic mini-strokes that preyed upon her brain had swept the ground out from under my hope that she was indestructible. But her voice was still as clear and noble as her standards. "'What is that chiseled on the lintel?' she asked, squinting dubiously at the mausoleum and pretending to read, "'Made a pile of money? Afraid no one will notice when I die? Now they'll never forget me?' Grand-nephew-ick obligations included acting the straight man for a woman who remembered vaudeville. I think it says, gross. Well, gross he is. The English gross, with an E. I know who Mr. Gross is. I have heard things that would curl your hair. Little escaped Connie's attention in Newberry. She cherished the town and nourished it with gifts like our grand town hall and a library as comfortable as a Fifth Avenue club. What things that would curl my hair? I do not repeat gossip. Too bad. Gossip was the lifeblood of my dual career, real estate agent and private investigator. 
Gossip snared me exclusive listings of old estates before my competitors learned they were for sale. Gossip hinted where the bodies were buried. The gossip I had already heard repeated speculated that Brian Gross had moved to Newberry from California, where he had struck it rich developing shopping centers or condos or some such blight on the land, and now telecommuted part-time to a venture capital group that specialized in real estate. Nothing hair-curling about that. We're close enough to New York City to visit for pleasure, but way too far for a daily commute. And Brian Gross was not the only entrepreneur who had moved to Newberry to enjoy the pleasures of emailing in his bathrobe. Otherwise, developer Gross seemed to be in youthful semi-retirement, thank God. All he had developed here was his own mega-mansion atop Mount Pleasant Road, which he slathered with stucco, a building material better suited to drug law.